Today on CityCast Pittsburgh, we're almost 30 years into the opioid crisis. That's most of my life, and it's still bad. Like, really bad. People are still dying. Prescription and synthetic drugs are still out there. And the pandemic has made just about everything more complicated. Today, I'm with senior producer Megan Harris to talk about some of the massive lawsuits out there, how that money could be divvied up, and how people are still getting treatment in our area. It's Tuesday, March 1st. I'm Morgan Moody, and this is CityCast Pittsburgh. So we'll start on a lighter note. Sunday night, Pittsburgh native Michael Keaton accepted a SAG Award, or Screen Actors Guild Award, for his performance in a pretty sobering show. I know most people don't think about us up there in the mountains. Many of my patients are minors. It's dangerous work, and they carry the burden of building this nation on their backs. They're okay. These people, my people, trusted me. I can't believe how many of them are dead now. So in Dope Sick, my favorite Batman plays a rural doctor in the mid-1990s through like 2005-ish. And he does what feels unthinkable to us today. He believes Purdue Pharma when they said in the 90s that OxyContin wasn't addictive. Um, Morgan, have you seen the show? I did. I watched it. um, And to be honest with you... It's not even to say it didn't. I mean, obviously, I've realized that the epidemic is as terrible as it is and has been, but I don't think that I quite realized the history behind it and how it started. Yeah, it definitely villainizes Purdue Pharma. And I guess I don't know enough about the uh, epidemic such as it was to know if it's quite as methodical as the show represents it, right? That they knew precisely what they were doing when they were doing it. Um, But all the settlements out there certainly claim that. Um, So it's been really interesting to follow the news around this, especially here in Pennsylvania. Yeah. So Megan, I mean, as far as lawsuits, how many are there out there? It's tough to keep a count on it because a lot of them have combined over the years, right? So a big one that's been followed all over the nation is $26 billion opioid agreement um, with three of the major distributors plus Johnson & Johnson for their role in creating and fueling this nationwide crisis. Pennsylvania is expected to receive a billion of that, and it could be distributed as early as April, maybe as late as May. And where is that money going to? Is it going to like the families of the victims? Is it going towards treatment? Is it going towards foundations? So that's still a big open question. Most of the reporting is pointing to not the families. So if you've already been affected by this, if you've lost a loved one, if you've been, you know, your family has been ravaged by addiction, which is most people in the nation at this Mm -hmm. point, you're not likely to get a monetary payout. Um, Instead, a lot of the state governments and health departments are saying that this is going to go into recovery care and preventative care around addiction. So hopefully more education. And I know that there's some care providers that have been talking a lot about harm reduction services, uh, which we'll actually get to a little bit later in the show. Yeah, it's it's hard to imagine uh, almost any family that hasn't in some way been impacted by addiction. So that's four companies. But does that include Purdue Pharma? No. So that $26 billion number comes from Cardinal, McKesson, Amerisource Bergen, and then of course Johnson & Johnson. Purdue Pharma's is more complicated. I don't know if you remember, but a few years 
years ago, they declared bankruptcy. Um, it's a privately owned company by a single family. And they've had to pay out money already, correct? Like Purdue Pharma. No, no. no. So it's been going through the court system. They... If the settlement that they struck last year as part of their bankruptcy would have gone out, I think it would have been a payout of around $4.5 billion, but that deal was rejected by the courts, um, a federal judge, in December. So the last we've heard is that the Sacklers have now boosted their payout offer to, quote, not less than $5.5 billion and up to $6 billion. But the sticking point with that is that they're still demanding a total release from any opioid liability. So nobody in the family who ran the company could ever be sued individually for their role in pushing OxyContin. Wow. Yeah, you guys need to watch Dope Sick because that doesn't sound like a good deal, particularly if you've seen the show and if it is anything close to what happened in reality. Yeah. Well, and I think the part that gets lost in some of this, at least for me, is that, you know, because some of this stuff has fallen out of the headlines and it's just been going on for so long, I think I kind of had the impression that maybe crisis wasn't the best word for it anymore, that maybe we were kind of coming out of the depths of this. But if you look at the data, like that's not true at all anymore. People are still coming to prescription opioids. They're still transitioning to heroin. Many people are still finding their way to synthetic opioids like fentanyl, and it gets much, much, much more dangerous from there. And the number of overdoses are still climbing. So you took some of our questions to a doctor here in Pittsburgh. What What's her specialty? Yeah, her name's Dr. Pyle Roy. She's an assistant professor of medicine and the clinical director of the Addiction Medicine Consult Service at UPMC, mostly out of Mercy and Presbyterian. Um, But most importantly, she's on the ground every day working with people whose lives have been totally upended by addiction. We'll let you hear from her. So you're an internist and an addiction specialist. Can you explain what that means, like what you do for people? Sure. So what that means is I see folks in the hospital and in the clinic who have general medical problems, but I mostly focus on people with opioid use disorder or opioid addiction. What does opioid use disorder or substance abuse disorder mean in this context? Sure. What that means is I see people who have uh, an opioid addiction, meaning a loss of control over whether it's prescription opioid use or um, illicit opioid use like heroin or fentanyl. And I kind of treat them with, uh, well, my specialty or my expertise is in addressing the opioid overdose epidemic with medication treatment, uh, in addition to therapy and programs like AA and NA. Yeah. When you say uh, the treatment options, does that mean like methadone or suboxone or something like that? Yeah, exactly. Um, so I, um, so my expertise is also in, or my focus is in low barrier access to uh, buprenorphine, methadone. So these are treatments for opioid use disorder. Yeah. Well, and opioids, I guess, are known whether it's, you know, like street heroin or the prescription opioids that I guess a lot of us are more familiar with, like Oxycontin and others have more spikes, right? As opposed to methadone, which is, I guess, I don't know if I'm saying this right, but it's a, a, a longer and lower high. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So heroin, fentanyl, prescription opioids that are short acting, um, they cause these sort of highs and lows uh, for our patients. And so um, that's kind of where people develop that withdrawal, craving, tolerance cycle. And so when people are in withdrawal, they're kind of seeking opioids just to rather than have that high again, just to feel normal. 
And so what methadone and buprenorphine do, so these are medications that are opioids themselves, but they're longer acting. And so they prevent that, that spike, that high and the low. And so people just can go back to feeling normal rather than having the highs and lows over and over again. Yeah. So fentanyl was part of the reason why you got so invested in this early on in your career. You know, we talk about like the opioid crisis. It's been going on for 30 years. That's most of our lives. But what's your perspective when you look at some of the statistics about addiction rates and as people are still struggling with overdoses and things like that? Yeah. So unfortunately, opioid overdose rates continue to rise. And just like everything else in healthcare, um, this problem has been affected by the pandemic. So we continue to see an increase in opioid overdose deaths during the COVID-19 pandemic, especially driven by economic insecurity, social isolation, and decreased access to treatment. And so that's just kind of trends over in the U.S., but we're seeing that here in our own backyard, too. Um, So my clinical practice is um, at UPMC and Presbyterian in Oakland. And so we have an addiction consult service there. So what that means is you know, for people who are admitted to a medical or surgical unit, um, and they have maybe uh, some kind of addiction, like usually an opioid addiction complicating their admission, we'll come and see them to offer medication treatment, help manage withdrawal, and um, just help with social supports. And so, you know, we're just seeing increased rates of people coming in with um, hospitalizations for infections related to injection drug use, um, and for overdoses as well. Yeah, who are your clients? Are they all you know local Pittsburghers? Um, can people reach you from you know more far afield? Yeah, so I'm focused um, or I'm based mostly at the hospital, and I also have a clinic. Our clinic is the Internal Medicine Recovery and Engagement Program at UPMC Mercy, and so our patients do come from all over. Um, you know, we're a tertiary care center, so we'll get referrals from hospitals all over the area. Um, you know, up to about two hours away from here. So we're seeing patients from from all over. And that's in the hospital. And that's in the clinic as well. Do you find that when people come to you, they want to be there? They want help? That's a great question. So I think what's so unique about having an addiction consult service in the hospital is that it sort of flips the model around um, where we are coming to the patient. In this model, you know, people are already here, they're engaged, they're motivated. And so we're able to kind of meet people where they are and offer patients treatment. Because not everybody is coming into the hospital thinking, okay, today is the day I'm going to stop using whatever I'm using. They're here hoping to get treatment for their broken leg or their fevers and chills or whatever else brought them in. And so we're able to kind of offer this low barrier access to treatment that they might not otherwise have sought. Yeah. I feel like a lot of us have consumed a lot of media lately about the opioid crisis, you know, the television show on Hulu, Dope Sick, and so many books that have come out lately um, investigating various aspects of how the pharmaceutical companies made some of these drugs. Are you still finding that a lot of people are coming to you with prescription opioid um, concerns, or maybe that's how it started? Or is it more synthetic opioids that has is plaguing some of the folks right now? Yeah, I would say it's a combination. So a lot of my patients will tell me that they started with um, exposure to a prescription opioid, whether um, 
it was prescribed to them or prescribed to somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, eventually, you know, they sort of progress to elicit opioid use, not unlike what we saw in dope sick. Um, so kind of starting off with the prescription opioid, moving to heroin, and then, um, you know, the heroin supply in the US really isn't heroin anymore. It's, it's mostly fentanyl. And that's especially true in Pittsburgh. Um, and I, I have sort of watched that transition uh, in my patients. So, you know, fentanyl is about 50 times stronger than heroin. And so it's really big concern because, um, you know, you might think that you're using the same amount of heroin you've always been using, but instead now it's fentanyl and it's much stronger. And that's also, you know, contributing to the overdose epidemic. How do you find that addiction manifests in people? Um, how do they usually come to you? Mm-hmm. You know, I know we talked a little bit about the hospital setting, but, you know, what state of mind are they in? Um, how, how are they feeling? That kind of thing. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of a lot of shame and guilt around addiction. Um, and there's just a lot of stigma around not just addiction, but in seeking treatment as well. So a lot of stigma around being on the medications. And so actually, a lot of times my patients will ask me, you know, how long do I have to be on this medication for um, referring to buprenorphine or methadone? And, you know, we always say for as long as you need, right? Um, We say that for any other chronic disease. Do you find that folks when they start with you, uh, with your services, have expectations, you know, like, I'm going to get better, and an idea of what better means? Yeah, so there's a lot of push for, uh, complete abstinence from any opioids, which I completely understand why people feel that way. Um, You know, they feel like being on medication treatment is like replacing one drug for another. Um, And again, totally understand why folks feel that way. This is, you know, being on an opioid. But really, the idea is to break that cycle of highs and lows, prevent exposure to unpredictable strengths of illicit opioids, and really just get your life back under control. So it's not just about you know, a drug for your recovery. It's about what else do you gain from being in recovery, whether that's you know being able to keep a job or that's family reunification and really just getting your life back. And so we really try to talk to people about, about these other goals. Methadone, um, I'm imagining what I've seen on television. Uh, it's like a clinic setting. You have to be physically on site. You drink it in front of them, and then you sit for a minute to make sure that it's okay. Kind of like a lot of us have experienced like taking the vaccine. You have, must be monitored for a moment before you leave. Um, is that how methadone treatment still works? Yep, that's exactly how methadone treatment works here. So you get dosed every day, um, you go to a methadone clinic, they watch you take the medication, and then you're able to go. That's such a huge time commitment. It's a big time commitment. And, you know, so there are there is the ability to earn what we would call take homes. Um, So that means that if you are doing well in the clinic, if you're going every day, you're going to your counseling or therapy sessions, um, and you're on a stable dose, they will start offering you to be able to take for instance, a bottle of methadone home. Um, the clinics around here in Pittsburgh are, some of them are closed both days of the weekend, some are just closed on Sundays. And so everybody, regardless of where they are in their recovery journey, can will get like a take-home bottle on Friday or Saturday um, to kind of address that. But yeah, it's uh, so that's part of the issue is it can be quite onerous for a lot of people to, to stay on methadone. Yeah. I mean, what's the 
perfect world scenario. Um, you know, do you like the clinic system? Would you rather see something else? Yeah. So, um, so there's other models in other countries. So methadone, the way it's uh, dispensed here is pretty fixed. Here in Pennsylvania or here in the U.S.? Here in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so for instance, a model in, uh, in Canada is they have pharmacy dispensing of methadone. So what that means is that um, I or another you know, physician can prescribe the methadone and send it to the patient's pharmacy, and the patients can get observed dosing at their pharmacy. So the reason that that's better potentially is because um, there's just more pharmacies around, right? So there's much fewer methadone clinics compared to pharmacies. So you might have to only walk a couple blocks to go to your nearest pharmacy. And the pharmacies are often open 24 hours a day or at least seven days a week. Yeah, so there's just a lot more, a lot more access. Um, so I think that is a really, a really good model. And it's just another way for people to be able to access their medication. They don't have to necessarily go to a, a, a clinic and maybe be around people that they may not otherwise want to be around or have this label that they might not want to have. You know, it's, it's just more access for folks. Excellent. Well, Dr. Roy, thanks so much for talking to us. Thanks so much for having me. I'll stop the recorder and then your pain is over. (laughs) Is that a bad joke? We can't let you go without a little more news. I don't know if you've seen this, but Pennsylvania liquor stores have pulled Russian vodka off the shelves. Have you seen this, Megan? This is so ridiculous to me. Like, I appreciate the stance and solidarity with the Ukrainian government, but like, we'd already purchased them. Like, what are they going to do? Put them on a back shelf until the conflict is resolved and then put them back out? Like, I don't understand what the point of this is, like, economically. Yeah, I saw a post on Sunday. And it was these two men pouring out, you know, vodka onto the streets. And I thought, well, for one, you're right, you've already bought it. And two, it is very eerily similar to the Freedom Fries. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Well, and the other thing, too, is that, you know, I I don't know if you've seen these stories, but uh, like the AP and others have pointed out that the state of Pennsylvania, they only carry like two Russian brand like made in and produced and sold by Russian vodka. Like there's two in the state plus a few specialty products. So like, are we really making a huge dent here? And I've been doing my part to support the war efforts for years. I actually stopped drinking vodka uh, sophomore year of college after (laughs) I tried to mop my carpet. And I do believe it was a Russian brand, Vladimir Vodka or Orlov Vodka. It came in a plastic container. See, no, that could be one of the the fakers, they said. There's like a ton that are branded as Russian but aren't necessarily Russian vodka. So I'm guessing Vladimir was probably not the real stuff. No, it was rubbing alcohol. If you do want to add your dollars to Pittsburgh's effort to support Ukraine, um, the Jewish Federation has a relief fund where they're taking very serious donations. Uh, we'll link to it in the show notes and in our newsletter. And Megan, do you know what today is? Heck yes, I do. It's Fat Tuesday. That's right. If you haven't put your order in for Punchkey, it's probably too late. You missed the boat. I think they only make it like twice a year, once or twice a year. Um, it is a Polish donut-like dessert that's filled with like custard, buttercream. I, I, the one that I had was um, 
like coconut and buttercream. Have you ever had these? I have. They're not for me. I'm, as a child of the South, I am a beignet person <laughs> um, or a biscuit person. I appreciate Punchki and all their glory, but I'm not a f- I'm not a donut filling person. So like Punchki was never going to be my jam. And yeah, I feel like you know I've done Mardi Gras in New Orleans. Same. Uh, yeah. You know, I've you can't come back after that. Like no, you go to Cafe Dumont, you wait in that mm-hmm. line, and and that's the standard. Yeah. Once you've been in New Orleans for the real deal, it is tough. How are people celebrating this? Well, I know how I'm celebrating. It's my one of my favorite days for local news of the year. I always pull up live feeds from New Orleans and watch as local news anchors try to fill like almost 24 hours of unbroken time with drunk people in costume. It's beautiful. It's one of my very favorite things. That's a good celebration. I think I'm going to put on my old Mardi Gras beads of of yesteryear and um, just eat all the things that I can't eat because Lent starts the next day. Uh, but seriously, there is at least one event that we know about for sure. Uh, you can celebrate Mardi Gras uh, with New Orleans-style food and live music at the Allegheny Elks Lodge on the north side. Um, they always do it big. It's a little bit of an older crowd, but it's a lot of fun. But do they have char-grilled oysters? Oh my gosh, no. That's going to require a trip down south. I'm booking my flight now. Yes. CityCast field trip to Drago's, please. They also have these amazing um, Houdé shrimp. Houdat shrimp. Just spoon feed me butter. That's all for us today here on CityCast Pittsburgh. If you like us, let us know. Drop a rating and review an Apple podcast so other people can find the show too. We'll be back tomorrow morning. Remember, we're daily now with more news from around the city. See you then. (laughs) I ate so many animals when I was in New Orleans. I mean, that makes sense. Like squirrel, gator, like, I mean, roadkill alone will give you a lot.